Okay. So uh, grateful to be a part of this uh, presentation tonight. Thank you, Renee, and your group for, for asking me uh, to come. Thank you to Plum Creek Chapel for hosting. Uh, by the way, because we do have a group meeting in this room, if you need to slip out to use the restroom, we have two restrooms out in the lobby there. You can go out that back door uh, if you need to. Um, but I want to talk tonight about borders, the Bible, and believers. And this, I've tr I'm going to try to make this a comprehensive overview, both biblically and as well as, you know, currently what's going on in the world uh, as the globalists are trying to absolutely dismantle and dis destroy all of uh, national sovereignty, and that, of course, means dismantling uh, borders. So uh, we're going to start kind of with Scripture, and then I'll get into, in the middle of the presentation, a lot of uh, current events and things that, uh, that indicate where we're headed on this trajectory. Um, but so let's start with some Scripture. First of all, uh, Paul's message at Mars Hill when he was speaking there to the Athenian uh, philosophers. Uh, and in the midst of that uh, message, he says, God has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and he has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Did you realize that when God created this earth, he has a plan that involves both globalism, and we're going to talk about that in a second, where it goes from globalism back to globalism, but the bulk of it of his plan involves nationalism and involves nations. In fact, as we're going to see, even in the eternal state, after the kingdom, after uh, Christ comes back and makes all things new, we're still going to have nations. That's part of God's divine design. This is from Job when Job is answering one of his uh, friends who were, you know, always right there to provide encouragement, you know, to him. This is Zophar, and God, uh, Job responds to Zophar and declares God's glory, his majesty, and his sovereignty over all the nations. He says, God makes nations great and destroys them. And notice, he enlarges nations. In other words, he expands them and guides them. And then we get into Moses' writings in the Exodus, and we see the children of Israel ate manna for 40 years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. This word border is a key word in the Old Testament. It's used 92 times. It's the word kates, or katseh, katseh, edge, border, boundary, if you look it up in a Hebrew dictionary. It's all through the Old Testament. It, it was a key concept in ancient times. In the ancient Near East, your borders were critical. Your boundaries were critical. It was how you protected uh, your people. In Numbers, we read, Then the Lord God spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel, and say to them, When you come into the land of Canaan, this is the land that shall fall to you as an inheritance, the land of Canaan, to its boundaries. And then he proceeds in the rest of this chapter to outline exactly what those boundaries were. He starts with the southern border. And he talks about the key geographical markers that indicate where that border is going to be. And then he talks about the western uh, border. And he, and he, again, gives some markers. And then the northern border, and eventually the eastern border. And then he concludes this section by saying, This shall be your land with its surrounding boundaries. You cannot have a land, a nation, a people without boundaries. Uh, you go to uh, Moses' uh, writings here in Deuteronomy. He talks about of all the nations on the earth, Israel, God's chosen nation, uh, has experienced the greatest blessing. And they are God's chosen nation. Listen to what 
we read that the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations when he separated the sons of Adam. He set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, that's Israel, it's a metonym for Israel. Remember, Jacob's name was changed to Israel, and he had the 12 sons. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in the wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled him. He instructed him, and he kept him as the apple of his eye. This is important because if you read the Bible in its plain, literal, normal sense from cover to cover, you can there's no other conclusion you can come to except that God has a future for national Israel. I mean, the prophecies are abundantly clear. God has a plan for Israel that involves boundaries and a land. In fact, if you look at Genesis chapter 15, this promise that God made uh, to uh, Israel way back in the beginning, before they were even Israel, uh, he said, I'm going to give you this land. This is a covenant, an unconditional covenant. And he describes it from the, I mean, they didn't have, you know, uh, title companies and tax records and things like that. They described it using the geographic boundaries from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites, and the Jebusites. And what he was describing looks like this. What you see outlined there in blue is the promised kingdom for Israel. What you see in red is Israel's current uh, nation. So, uh, you know, they've never fully inhabited the land that's been promised to them. They've had the rights to it, as Joshua tells us, but they've never had the full boundaries of uh, their land. It's about 300,000 square miles, but someday they will. And the Bible makes that very clear. Ezekiel describes, for example, the temple that will be built when Christ comes back uh, to take the throne. Uh, in about 400 to 500 B.C., uh, Israel had been carried off into captivity again and again, first the northern kingdom to Assyria, then the southern kingdom in Babylon. And uh, Jeremiah, the, the weeping prophet, writes to this uh, post-exilic community who, who may have wondered if God had forgotten them or forsaken his promises. Is it, is it all over? Uh, you know, do we still have this promised covenant? And Jeremiah, the prophet speaking for the Lord, says, There is hope in your future, says the Lord, that your children shall come back, where? To their own border. So I've, I've got five sections that I want, with that background about borders, I've got five things I want to talk about uh, in, in my presentation. First of all, borders at the beginning. Borders at the beginning. So if we go all the way back to the beginning, Genesis 1.1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In chapter 2, verse 1, same thing. Thus the heavens and the earth, all the host of them, were finished. And what did God tell Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, the whole earth. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and every living thing that moves on the earth. This was the, the, the world into which God created Adam and Eve. It was a globalist system. There were no nations. There was one God, one people, and they were to have dominion over the whole earth. And as we later read in the book of Genesis, at that time, the whole earth had one language and one speech. But as we take a step back and look at God, a panoramic view of God's plan of the ages that started with creation roughly 6,000 years ago, uh, we see several things that begin to happen that sort of show us the trajectory of this pl government plan, the plan that 
that God has for human government or civil government. So let's just look at a few key events in human histories. We'll start with creation. Of course, they didn't have dates the way we mark time at this point, but if we go back and compare Scripture and science, by the way, uh, you know, science is a Christian's best friend, so you can you know, believe Darwin that says the world is millions and billions of years old and we all evolved from a wet rock, or you can believe the Bible, which science attests to, that it's a young earth, about 6,000 years old, and God spoke the world mature into its uh, existence. So, But if you go back and you use modern dating uh, times, we would put that roughly at 4004 B.C. By about 1,500 years later, uh, mankind was utterly wicked. We had the uh, fallen angels, uh, in, in this incursion when they came down trying to destroy the bloodline and uh, cohabiting with women and creating the Nephilim. We don't have time to get in uh, to all of that. But as a result of that unholy incursion, uh, God destroyed the earth with the global flood. That was around 2348 B.C. So roughly 4,371 years ago was the beginning of the flood. Up to that time, we had been in a globalist uh, paradigm. One people serving God with no uh, boundaries, so to speak. But after that, uh, we see something interesting happen. So let's take a closer look at chapter 11 of Genesis. Very fascinating thing uh, happens and develops. It came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. And then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone. They had asphalt uh, for mortar. This is about 100 years after the flood, so circa 2242 B.C., about 250 years before Abraham, if you want to pinpoint the date. Uh, 100 years after the flood. In other words, it didn't take long after the flood for wickedness to rise once again on the earth and people to start doing wicked things. Because what did they say? They said, Well, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The Lord then said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us, the triune God, uh, just like we read in Genesis chapter 1, let us make man in our image. This is the eternal Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Let us go down there and confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. The key figure in wickedness at this time was a guy by the name of Nimrod. You go back to chapter 10, that's where Nimrod first appears. He was the son of Cush, the grandson of Ham. And the name Nimrod in Hebrew means we shall rebel. And that's exactly what he was leading these people to do. Uh, Nimrod was the first powerful king on earth. Remember, the wickedness that developed before the flood was kind of led by these angelic fallen angels that, that came down. After the flood, you still had the wickedness of man. The heart of man is desperately wicked. And Noah's descendants, some of them uh, turned against God, and they did so under the leadership of this wicked, powerful king, Nimrod. The first cities of Nimrod's kingdom were cities like Babylon. You know a thing or two about Babylon, don't, don't we? It comes up again at the end in Revelation chapter 17. And, and it's uh, a key city in the Antichrist's uh, reign of terror during that seven years prior to the return of Christ. Uh, Nineveh, 
was one of the cities in Nimrod's kingdom, and Kela in Assyria. Now, here's where it gets interesting, because there was a first century historian by the name of Josephus. Maybe you've heard the name Josephus. He was a contemporary of uh, the apostles, and uh, he tells us something in his uh, writings about Nimrod. Listen to what he says. He, Nimrod, persuaded them to attribute their prosperity not to God, but to their own valor, and little by little transformed the state of affairs into tyranny. See, Satan's been trying since he got kicked out of heaven to overcome the world, to defeat God and, and, and take the throne and have all of creation worship him. His coup attempt in heaven failed, and so he set his sights on the earth, and he's been conspiring with evil celestial beings and human beings, co-conspirators in this conspiracy to try to take over the world, and Nimrod was one of them. Uh, so little by little, he transformed the state of affairs into tyranny, holding that the only way to detach men from the fear of God was by making them continuously dependent upon his power. He threatened it to have his revenge on God if he wished to inundate the earth again. Remember, the flood had only been 100 years ago. They, they knew very well about uh, the flood, the flood story. Uh, for he would build a tower higher than the water could reach and avenge the destruction of their forefathers. So the Tower of Babel that they built, why did they build that tower? Because once again, they wanted to rebel against God, and, and they knew what God did last time, and so they thought, oh, we're prepared this time, we're going to build this tower, and so this time when he floods the world, which of course God had promised, he wouldn't flood the world again, uh, but nevertheless, they wanted to be uh, prepared. So why do we bring up uh, you know, the Babylonians and Nimrod and, and that story? Well, it's because after the Tower of Babel is when we see the first major shift in human history from globalism to nationalism, from globalism to nationalism. So let's look at borders after Babel. Uh, what do we see? Well, going back to uh, Genesis chapter 11, we see this reference to nationalism. The Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel. The Hebrew word Babel means confusion, uh, and this is the onset of nationalism. Uh, for, because there the Lord confused their language, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. So what we see uh, when it comes to nationhood or nationalism are four defining qualities, four elements of nationhood that now take shape on the earth, and, and we're still living in this age to this day. So it's been over 4,000 years. God's divine design for human government involves nationhood. What are those four elements? Well, a common currency, a common language, a common culture, and of course, common borders, meaning borders unique to your people group, right? And I want to give you a quick case study because we've been here at Plum Creek Chapel, we've been studying the, the Old Testament book of Nehemiah on Sunday mornings. And, um, you know, uh, Nehemiah really gives us a lot of information about the importance of walls and borders and protection and that uh, type of thing. But borders are, are critical to any nation, any region, any city. It's, it's Without them, you're nothing. I, I remember one time, when we were uh, contemplating, this was years ago, a move up to the Pacific Northwest, and we were house hunting up there, and we looked at a, a property in uh, far northern Washington. In fact, it was contiguous, this property that we were looking at, 
to the Canadian border. And I don't remember how many acres it was, 10 acres, 20 acres. Uh, but I remember the, the real estate agent, as we were looking at the property, telling us, you know, yeah, if you go out in your backyard and you start walking around in the trees, you might actually cross over into Canada and not realize it because there's like there's no markers, there's no wall, there's no border. So I was thinking, man, that'd be pretty cool to have a property where you I'm gonna I'm gonna go uh, for a walk, honey. I'll be back in an hour, and you just go to another country, you know, and didn't even realize it. Um, and uh, but borders uh, prevent that type of thing. So when you go back to uh, the book of Nehemiah to put it in historical perspective. Uh, it's 445 B.C. The people of Israel had started to return under Zerubbabel and Ezra to their land, having been released from Babylon and Persia. And, uh, and so as they're coming back, they get to the city of Jerusalem, and they realize that the walls of the city were completely torn apart, leaving the city defenseless and vulnerable to enemy nations. And there were no shortage of enemies around Israel then, just as there are uh, today. So Nehemiah uh, gets a report about how the wall in Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned uh, with fire. And so then God leads him. He starts praying, and God leads him to lead this rebuilding uh, project. And he goes and he visits there. And uh, uh, he, he, he says, uh, You see the distress we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste, and its gates are burned with fire. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer be a reproach. What does he mean by Reproach. It's, it's not kind of what we might think in English. We're just kind of embarrassed. It's you're in danger. You're actually in danger. And they were. And so uh, they built the wall. And when Sanballat heard, that's one of his enemies, when he heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he was furious. Why? Because the Jews were sitting ducks without that wall. With a wall, it's a different story. I mean, this was a different time. They didn't have drones and surface-to-air missiles and, and, you know, all kinds of other uh, fancy uh, weapons that DARPA put together and, and created and, and that they're going to turn on us at some point. Uh, it was basically, you know, catapults and horses and those kinds of things. So they were not happy about it, and they began to mock the Jews. In fact, they, they said, oh, this wall that you're building, you know, if even a fox goes up on it, it'll fall apart, you know. But God had other plans, and so um, eventually they finished the wall in uh, 52 days, by the way, an amazing testimony. It's a fascinating book to read, only 13 chapters. You should uh, read it if you have time. Um, but uh, when uh, Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshub, the Arab, and these are their enemies, uh, heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that there were no breaks left in it. So they finished the wall, but it still had no doors and no gates, and so... Uh, finally, they said, when the wall was built and I had hung the doors, and once they hung the doors, it was a different story. The people began to celebrate. They began to, without fear, gather together and fulfill the sacrifices and worship Yahweh and do all that they could do. Why? Because they had borders, because they were protected. They didn't have to look over their shoulder and wonder, you know, uh, who was going to be swimming across that Rio Grande and coming up with, you know, terrorist bombs and things like that, right? Uh, so that's borders after Babel. And now I want to get into kind of the meat of what I want to talk about tonight, and that is border, borders in a burgeoning technocracy. Um, uh, my newest book, which we don't even have the inventory yet, but we do have a, a proof copy back there, and we're taking orders if you're interested. It's, it's called Rise of the Global Technocracy, the Spirit of the False Prophet, Rise of the Global Technocracy. And a technocracy, as I explained in the book, is just ruled by technology. 
And the reason this is so critical is, first of all, for the last hundred years, the globalists have been talking about technocracy because they know to accomplish the level of full-spectrum planetary control that they need to rule the world and, and usher in a one-world system, a new world order, they're going to have to use technology because uh, Satan's not omnipotent or omnipresent, neither will the false prophet or antichrist be, so uh, they're going to have to use technology. And so, really, technology is their tool of control, their weapon of control. And what they're striving for is a return to globalism, a one-world political, religious, and economic uh, system. And as you go to Scripture, you do see that indeed the Bible is going to shift, the, the world history is going to shift once again, according to the Bible, to globalism. But that's going to happen in two phases. First, we're going to see a satanic globalism. King David talks about this in Psalm 2, uh, and he describes this conspiracy, this, uh, this effort of Satan and his earthly co-conspirators, his earthly accomplices, to try to sh throw off uh, the bonds and cords of God's control. Listen to what David says. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. Whenever you see Lord in all caps in our English Bibles, that's a reference to Yahweh, uh, the personal name of God and against his anointed. Who's that? That's Jesus Christ, his eternal son. So these kings, these rulers, these globalists are striving together. And what are they doing? They're saying, let us break their bonds. There it is again, the triune God, in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Satan hates God. He hates his control. He hates the fact that, that he was not able to overthrow God in heaven. And God just said, you're gone be gone with you. And it was done. So he has control issues. He hates the fact that God's in control and he's not, right? And so that's what David is describing here. And then uh, what? how does God respond? It's fascinating. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. In other words, God's plan is as good as done. He already has a plan that involves his eternal son coming back, taking the long-awaited throne that's been promised to him, and ruling it with a perfect peace, justice, righteousness with a rod of iron. And so uh, God's not worried at all about these globalists, and neither should we be. We should be aware and prepared, and that's what we've been trying to do with these last books that I've written at Not By Works, is just to make people aware of the direction that we're headed, uh, because you don't want to be caught flat-footed. You want to be awake. That's what First Thessalonians 5, 6 says. Uh, and if the Lord doesn't come back soon, we're going to have to endure a lot of this, right? So we want, to, we want to be prepared to face the tyranny that's coming and that Satan is conspiring together uh, to make happen. But this return to globalism is going to have a, a satanic phase. We don't know how long that phase will be. We know that the Antichrist will rule it for seven years. So that's when Satan indwells this human being, the Antichrist, his sidekick, the false prophet, which is the subject of my new book. Uh, between the two of them, they, they rule the world. They roll out the beast system. They put the control grid in place, the whole mark of the beast, all of that. We know that part will be relatively short-lived, a seven-year period in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, Daniel's prophecy to be exact. But we could already be in this technocracy 
even before the rapture, even before the Antichrist takes the helm. In fact, more and more, I, I really believe, as I've studied Scripture now for 35 years, been studying Bible prophecy, I really believe that the Antichrist almost certainly has to inherit a globalist system. He won't have enough time to implement it. I mean, it's what you read about in Revelation chapters 6 to 18 is, you know, is not something that he's going to have the time to put in place. He's only there for seven years. So I believe he steps in to a fully developed technocracy is, is my understanding. Daniel talks about this in two places. Daniel chapter 2, for example, Nebuchadnezzar's famous dream, where Daniel uh, interprets it with the help of God and explains that Daniel's dream is essentially a roadmap of human history. And it's so precise that to this day, many liberal scholars reject Daniel. They say, oh, he, he couldn't possibly have written it because it's too accurate, <laughs> because it describes Things in the past and the future describes the Babylonian age, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, and then the Roman Empire, which, of course, uh, had uh, two uh, halves, the, the western uh, half and the eastern half. And then he describes a revival of that fourth kingdom or empire, uh, the revived Roman Empire, not a fifth kingdom, but another emergence of this kingdom yet again. And I believe it's going to have also five nations from the west and five uh, from the east. But the same vision is given to Daniel himself in Daniel chapter 7, except it's beasts this time. Uh, but it parallels the statue of chapter 2 perfectly. And that revived Roman Empire is the end times. There is going to be a new one world system emanating from Rome, uh, as, as a key part of the geography of it, that the Antichrist will ultimately take uh, the helm of. Um, so you go to Daniel chapter 7. Uh, Daniel says, I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful. This is the coming one world uh, system. Uh, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth. And what do we know about that kingdom? Well, it's going to devour the whole earth. You know, all these other kingdoms, I have a chapter in the new book about historical henchmen, lackeys, and, and uh, second-in-commands, uh, just to kind of show you how throughout history, all of the famous tyrants who had their moment of fame to try to take over the world, they had a second-in-command, just like the Antichrist will, a lesser-known, uh, and just like the, the false prophet is, is lesser-known in Scripture, but we know enough about him to know, and if we know history, we know there's always behind every tyrant this kind of guy lurking in the shadows that's a part of the dynamic duo. And so all of these uh, tyrants throughout history, you know, uh, have, have, have never conquered the whole world. They may have set out to do that. You know, Alexander, uh, the, the Roman uh, emperor, uh, Augustus, uh, in the Middle Ages, we could think of uh, uh, people like. Uh, uh, Genghis Khan, for example, or in modern times, uh, Mao, or of course Stalin, and then Hitler. Hitler had Goebbels. Uh, Genghis Khan had Subutai. Marcus uh, uh, Vespanus was uh, Augustus's second in command. And so, but this kingdom is going to devour the whole earth. And notice the ten horns which you saw are ten kings. This is from Revelation. So Revelation and Daniel go hand in hand and they validate each other, even though Revelation was written, you know, 100, let's see, 500 years later, 
uh, in a different language by a different human author being led by the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, God's Word is incredibly uh, consistent. And just as Daniel saw ten toes, uh, the book of Revelation describes ten horns. Well, who are these ten horns? They are ten kings who will be allies of the beast, the, fault, the, uh, the Antichrist, allies of that future Antichrist serving in his regime, his administration, under the worldwide government during that time. And uh, each one of them is going to evidently rule different kingdoms uh, simultaneously, and it'll be short-lived. Uh, the text says for one hour, where this will be right towards the end of the tribulation, when Christ comes back. Uh, we know uh, that their whole purpose is to rule the world. They're coming to make war with the Lamb. That's Jesus Christ who comes back uh, and, and, and at the Battle of Armageddon and ushers in and inaugurates the long-awaited kingdom. But these ten kings are a key part of this coming one-world system. Well, what's interesting about that is we think about this burgeoning technocracy and in context of borders and how they're trying to dismantle nationalism and usher in this regionalism. Uh, you go back to the Club of Rome. Now, I talk about the Club of Rome pretty extensively in Chapter 2 of Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 2, uh, the red uh, book uh, back there. Uh, but it was a secret group founded by Aurelio Pecci, David Rockefeller, and Alexander King in 1968. Uh, it was uh, kind of birthed at a meeting in, in uh, Rockefeller's home. And uh, their whole purpose was to influence the world's financial system and, and establish a one-world government. Uh, William Cooper, in his famous book, Behold a Pale Horse, uh, said that Pecci made it clear from its inception that the Club of Rome desired to, quote, take control of the world and to, quote, reduce the world to a safe level by a process of benevolent slavery and genocide. Uh, in fact, depopulation was a key part of the Club, Club of Rome's uh, agenda. They wanted to, in, quote, increase the death rate and in fact, Pecci, the founder, one of the three founders, suggested that they introduce a plague that would have the same effect as the Black Death. Uh, that's what their, their goal was. In fact, they put out a book in 1972, four years after they were founded, called The Limits to Growth, which is very famous to this day. You still see globalists and, uh, you know, key uh, liberals and, and uh, you know, Davos men and women quoting it and citing from it. Um, one of the stated goals that they mention in this book, Limits to Growth, was to warn of the likely outcome of contemporary economic and industrial policies to try to change them to a more sustainable uh, lifestyle. Uh, they wanted to keep uh, uh, the equilibrium of population carefully balanced. Um, and in other words, they want to depopulate the earth so that only the elite, the adept, the ones that are the enlightened ones can have the world as their playground and the rest of us useless breathers can be brushed aside. Same thing Yuval Noah Harari talks a lot about, how uh, most people are redundant. We just don't need most people on the earth anymore. I have a whole chapter dedicated to, not dedicated, but focused on uh, Yuval Noah Harari. Yeah. yeah, if I did dedicate to him, I'm not sure that... I'd be able to put in print what I would like to say to him. But um, no, I do a deep dive in him, his history, his background, a lot of things you may not know about uh, him. That's a chapter five in the new book. And his quotes are just will chill you to the bone. Many of them you've heard, but a lot of them I promise you you haven't heard. Uh, but um, the Club of Rome at a 
symposium not long ago to commemorate uh, their anniversary. They said the world needs to end its addiction to growth. Again, just continuing to trumpet what they said in Limits to Growth. So that came out in 72. Interestingly, in 1973, the Club of Rome put forth a plan to divide the world into what? Ten regions or kingdoms. Sound familiar? Kind of sounds biblical. Sounds prophetic. Uh, so you've got, you know, North America, Europe, Japan. That's interesting that Japan, for such a small geography, uh, number three over there to the far right, uh, it, yet it's one of the ten regions. Uh, then you've got Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa there in the kind of the salmon-colored uh, and then you've got Russia and all the Slavic nations. You've got South and Central America, North Africa and the Middle East uh, in orange, and then Central Africa there in kind of the burnt orange. And then, of course, Northeast Asia and India and then uh, China. Very, very interesting. In their 1973 report, the Club of Rome called this regionalized and adaptive model of the global world system. And so... It's taken a while, but this has been on, on their blueprint for a long time. This has been something they're working for, is dismantling national sovereignty in favor of globalism. Well, as we've been seeing from God's Word and from His plan, if you're going to dismantle national sovereignty, you got to get do away with borders, right? Uh, if you have borders, you're protected. Uh, now, that's less of a problem today than it was, say, in Nehemiah's day, but it still gives definition. It gives all of those four core things that we talked about that make up a nation. Michelle Bachman uh, told uh, Jan Markell one time, we are literally watching the twilight of Western civilization. And I think she's right. So that's why ever since the, the control of virus scamdemic that was rolled out after 16 years of planning in 2020, uh, they've been talking about the Great Reset. They actually were talking about the Great Reset even before the scamdemic. They just decided to relabel it and use this as a pretext for really ratcheting it up and increasing the rollout. But it's really a Luciferian endgame. It's really the great satanic reset. As God's Word says, that shift back to globalism is going to occur in two phases. First, a satanic phase, and ultimately, a, a globalist phase. Now, I've talked a lot in Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 2, about this fella, uh, Klaus Schwab, the man behind the World Economic Forum. Now, what's the connection between the World Economic Forum and the Club of Rome? Well, the Club of Rome founded the World Economic Forum, and I explained the history of that in uh, Volume 2. Uh, but uh, Klaus Schwab and all of his cronies that you see on the, uh, the screen there, these are all uh, you know, Davos men that are key players in the globalist agenda at uh, this time. And uh, what was this great reset that they were talking about? Well, it had five pillars that need to be reimagined. And notice one of those is geopolitical. They, they want to restructure the map of the world, just like the... Uh, regionalization plan of the Club of Rome. So I've frequently given some of these quotes in different presentations, but uh, they are really interesting in light of the subject at hand tonight of borders and boundaries and what God's Word says about it. Uh, so, for example, uh, Schwab says, the pandemic represents a rare but narrow window of opportunity to reflect, reimagine, and reset our world. Think about that in terms of the regionalization plan. Uh, when will things get to, back to normal? The short answer is never. 
Um, the world as we knew it in the early months of 2020 is no more. The world is no more. Uh, and, of course, he and many others were suggesting that we re-reckon time as B.C. and A.C. before coronavirus and after coronavirus. Um, and then in his, his latest book, which came out last year, 2022, uh, post-pandemic, called The Great Narrative, he says some of these things. Uh, the geopolitical and technological landscapes are being reshaped in a way that will make them unrecognizable in just a few years. Geopolitical and technological. Think technocracy as a means to an end to reshape the geopolitical landscape. Uh, he says uh, the Great Reset will require a great deal of innovation and dramatic changes in our economies, our societies, as well as the institutions, laws, and rules that govern them. Think government, civil government. All of this is going to change drastically. Disruption is coming. It will be both good and bad and major. New technology challenges our beliefs, morals, and religions and politics at their very core. Uh, and how are they going to do that? Well, they're telegraphing exactly what they're going to do. And being that they're Luciferians, they, they, they work at the behest of Satan at the top tier including guys like Schwab, they're literally worshiping Satan and taking their marching orders from him. And I talk about that in volume one, but, and I diagram it all out. But, uh, you know, they're going to use Satan's MO. I mean, what, who is Satan? Jesus said Satan's a liar from the beginning. When he speaks, everything he says is a lie. That's all he can do. What did Satan first do as the serpent? He lied to Adam and Eve. You will not surely die. Has God really said, right? And so here they're telling us that that's exactly what they're going to do. Nothing is more effective than the power of narratives. That is to say, developing stories that are both pertinent and convincing to others. This is the best way to motivate those with whom we interact socially, politically, and economically, and to move the agenda forward. What agenda? The great satanic reset. So they're going to lie. And they're already weaving those lies. And much as I, when I first woke up to the Luciferian conspiracy back in 2005 or six or seven, somewhere around there, and I tell the story in the introduction to volume one, but I began over the last several years now, nearly 20 years, to recognize that almost everything I learned about mainstream narrative in history is not true. And we're starting to learn more and more of that, you know, even in the last couple of years, last few years, right? We've learned that well, where for seven decades, the U.S. government and, and, and the Air Force and other branches of the military emphatically denied for 70 years that they were studying, cataloging, and researching UFOs, even though anybody that was a decent researcher at all knew that wasn't true. There was, you know, truckloads, buildings full of data on the matter. But no, no, nothing to see here. Move along. We're not doing it. You're all a bunch of tinfoil hat conspiracy theorists. And then what happened in 2017? Well, they finally came out and said, yeah, as a matter of fact, we have been studying it since 1947. Here's all the data, and we're quite concerned about it. We're worried about an otherworldly invasion from, you know, little green men. In fact, we need to start the Space Force, a sixth branch of the military, because, you know, telling what all this technology is, and now it's mainstream news everywhere. Now, I have two chapters on that in, in the second book, and I explain that biblically, with a biblical worldview, they, these are not little green men from another planet. This is dimensional. It's demonic. It's spiritual. It's an upsurge in the spiritual battle that's taking place. But my point is that's just one example of many in which they've lied and lied and lied and lied and lied. Uh, you know, they lied about... Uh, 
Vietnam, the Gulf of Tonkin incident. After 50 years, they finally said, yeah, you're right, we made the whole thing up. 58,000 deaths of servicemen and women later, there was no Gulf of Tonkin incident. It was completely fabricated and made up, and they've admitted that now. Uh, so I talk about all kinds of false flags in the, in the books. But uh, one more quote, he says, this is a new golden age, and it's going to require major institutional innovations, and among them is a supranational institution to regulate finance at the global level. In other words, a one-world government. Now, what is the Antichrist, what is the false prophet going to do during the seven-year reign of terror just before Christ comes back? Revelation chapter 13. We'll look at it in a moment. He's going to institute a global system of financial control according to which nobody on planet Earth is going to be able to buy or sell without government permission. That's what they're striving for, and that's exactly what he tells you is going to happen. So I want to give a few uh, quotes here, uh, not to you know, drive this point home too severely. I, I think you're tracking with me and you kind of get it. In fact, I feel like this is probably a pretty friendly uh, audience in terms of understanding the Luciferian conspiracy and the uh, satanic roots of globalism. But uh, let me just give you a few more salient quotes that uh, should remove all doubt. Uh, so Carol Quigley's a name that you should know. He was uh, the historian for the Council on Foreign Relations. He was also a uh, mentor to Bill Clinton and several other uh, world leaders. He taught at uh, at uh, Georgetown for many years and some other institutions as well. Uh, but in his famous book, Tragedy and Hope, which is essentially a tell-all about what the globalists have been planning, he says uh, its aim is nothing less than to create a world system of financial control in private hands able to dominate the political system of each country and the economy of the world as a whole. And in such a system, the individual's freedom and choice will be controlled. Again, right uh, out of uh, Scripture. Uh, after World War II, Churchill said the creation of an authoritative world order is the ultimate aim toward which we must strive. They thought, uh, the, the Luciferians thought that World War II was going to be the beginning of the New World Order. That's why they started the uh, United Nations, and they really thought this was going to be it. God had other plans. You know, the, the Luciferians are good at planning things and, 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 and telegraphing their plans. And uh, in uh, the chapter on the Luciferian timeline, I, I give some fascinating data about the year 2025 and how they've been talking about that for almost 100 years, going back to Alice Bailey and Helena Boblatsky and some of these other theosophists and Satan worshipers and channeling demons like Master DK, telling them, nope, 2025 is the final meeting of the Divine Council, and that's where we're going to take over the world, and Satan's going to rule and reign supreme and 2025 they've been saying that for 100 years so what it's no accident that you had agenda 21 the 21st century you have agenda 2030 you had the pandemic that was planned for you know, over 16 years 20 years in the making and everything's kind of coming to a head at a time like this but make no mistake that doesn't mean it's going to happen see god's the ultimate arbiter of the timetable and we don't know when you know how long his long arm of mercy is or how long the times of the gentiles will be or when he's going to allow the final phase of his plan of human history to to begin but it's helpful to know what their plan is and so after world war ii you had a lot of references to this new world order uh, charles de gaulle nations must unite in a world government or perish james paul warburg of the famous warburg banksters i talk about them in my chapter on cbdc's in the brand new book he says we're going to have world government whether you like it or not by conquest or consent uh, brzezinski uh, you know he's really the one that gave us the most data about 
technocracy and the meaning of uh, technocracy. Uh, uh, his uh, book, 1971 book about the technotronic era uh, in, in, in the new book, I have a whole, se- a whole chapter on that in his, his book. He's arguably, many would say, the most influential uh, figure in, a, in affecting foreign affairs in America in the last hundred years. He died in 2017, but he worked on both sides of the aisle, served in different administrations, uh, Republicans and Democrats both. I mean, he was, he was, uh, you know, he was uh, one of those guys. Just shows you that there's really not, uh, uh, you know, two sides. It's, a, it's the uniparty. Uh, but he said this regionalization, he's referring here to the trilateral plan of regionalization, which mirrors the, the uh, uh, Club of Rome's plan, calls for a gradual convergence of East and West, ultimately leading toward the goal of a one-world government. National sovereignty is no longer a viable concept. He said the technocratic era involves a gradual appearance of a more controlled society, unrestrained by traditional values. And in the context, he means liberty, you know, freedom, uh, national freedom. Soon it's going to be possible to assert almost continuous surveillance over every citizen and have instantaneous retrieval of it. Well, that gets into my chapter on hacking and tracking humanity and the data farms like the one in Sandy, Utah, and the bit buckets and how they can absolutely track everything you say, read, speak, and even think. One of the scariest sections in the new book is all about AI and mind control and how they're literally doing experiments now that they can literally read your mind. I mean, they can replicate, they can listen, you can listen to music and then an AI can, by simply looking at your brainwaves, replicate the style, genre, tempo, beat of the music you were listening to, simply by looking at your brainwaves. They can do the same thing with speech. I cite one study in the new book where, uh, you know, they, an AI would examine your brainwaves while you were listening to speech, and then it would repeat what you listened to, and 73% of the time, the examples, it would say you were either listening to this, 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 and it would give 10, 10 options. You know, it's not perfect yet. They're working on it, right? And 73% of the time, what you actually heard was in that list of 10 that the AI created. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable, and that's what they're uh, striving for. Uh, Brzezinski said soon the public will not even be able to reason or think for themselves. Uh, we're looking at the transformation of the United States into a highly controlled Society. Shortly before his death, he made one of his most chilling statements. This was in 2017. He said, today it's infinitely easier to kill one million people than it is to control one million people. And make no mistake, depopulation, as we've talked about, has always been uh, their goal. Satan is a killer. He's a murderer from the beginning, John 8, 44. Uh, we see lots of references to the New World Order throughout history. Of course, George H.W. Bush and his State of the Union address in 1991 in the context of the Gulf War, he said, The world can therefore seize this opportunity to fulfill the long-held promise of a New World Order, which his, grand, his father, Prescott Bush, tried to usher in in World War II when he financed Hitler. The Bush dynasty paid for a lot of Hitler's uh, horrific uh, things that he did. Or Nixon in 1972 meeting with the Chinese president. Each of us has the hope to build a new world order. Or Gorbachev in 1987 said we're moving toward a new world order. He thought it would be communism, but still, they want this globalist system. They all do. Kissinger says the new world order cannot happen without U.S. participation as we are the single most significant component. Yes, there will be a new world order. 
and it will force the United States to change its perceptions. When Obama was elected in 20, uh, 2008, uh, Kissinger told CNBC in an interview, I think that his, President Obama's, task will be to develop an overall strategy for America during this period when really the new world order can be created. See, they groomed Obama. Obama's the first and so far only truly Manchurian president who was birthed to become president, uh, just like the movie. And, uh, and they, uh, you know, they really thought with him in there that this was going to be it, yet another moment when they thought they could bring, bring about their plan. H.G. Uh, Wells, in his book entitled The New World Order, said countless people will hate the New World Order and will die uh, protesting it. Rockefeller said, all we need is the right major crisis. He also died in 2017, the same year Brzezinski died. And people will accept, nations will accept the New World Order. Uh, he said uh, in his memoirs, uh, he said, some people believe we're part of a secret cabal working against the best interest of the United States, conspiring with others around the world to build a more integrated global political and economic structure. One world is what, what they think we're trying to build. Uh, well, if that's the charge, I'm guilty and proud of it. He doesn't make any bones about it. Yeah, of course we're trying to, to usher in a one world system. He said the supranational sovereignty of an intellectual elite is far better than some national auto-determination, some national sovereignty. Going back to Kissinger, he once said, if UN troops today entered Los Angeles to restore order, people would be outraged. But one day, they'll be grateful. And this is especially true if they were told there was an outside threat from beyond, whether real or promulgated. Remember what Klaus Schwab said, they don't have to be real, just have to weave a story together that incites fear, and then people will beg for the one-worlders to come in and rescue them. Um, Henry Kissinger said it is then that individual rights will willingly be relinquished for the guarantee of their well-being granted to them by the world government. Here's a couple of video clips. Hopefully this will come through okay on the uh, speaker there. Uh, some of you may have seen this before if you've seen me speak at other conferences. But here's Walter Cronkite at the, quote, World Federalist Association meeting where he's receiving the Global Governance Award. Okay, so just let that sink in. Uh, he's being honored for his help in advancing the Luciferian globalist agenda. In this 26-second clip, he's referring to evangelical conservatives, whom he mockingly refers to, who think that only Christ is, can preside over a one-world system. In other words, who believe the Bible, right? And listen to what he says. Their leader, Pat Robertson, has written in a book a few years ago that we should have a world government, but only when the Messiah arrives. He wrote, and literally, any attempt to achieve world order before that time must be the work of the devil. Well, join me. I'm, I'm glad to sit here at the right hand of Satan. Well, join me. I'm glad to sit here at the right hand of Satan, right? Uh, and then a little bit later in that same uh, presentation where he received this award, uh, they piped in First Lady Hillary Rodham Clinton at the time uh, to kind of, by video, give her congratulations, and here's what she said. We would like to bring you a message from the First Lady of the United States, Hillary Rodham Clinton. Good evening and congratulations, Walter. I'm receiving the World Federalist Association's Global Governance Award. 
For more than a generation in America, it wasn't the news until Walter Cronkite told us it was the news. It wasn't the news until Walter Cronkite told us the news. Adds a whole new meaning to that now, doesn't it? And especially when you look at Operation Mockingbird and the controlled state-run media that's been controlled for since the 1950s for sure. The church committee hearings proved that. Uh, and I have a whole chapter on Mockingbird in the first volume, for what that's worth. Uh, Council on Foreign Relations is another key player in the globalist agenda. Uh, here's uh, Biden. Uh, uh, at one of these meetings, and he actually admits that he works for Richard Haas, the long-standing uh, director of the Council on Foreign Relations. And listen to what uh, Biden uh, says here. This is a 17-second uh, clip. Well, I can't hear that. Can you guys? Yeah, he says, I work here at the Council for Racing, and Biden interrupts and says, and I work for Richard. Yeah, he does. Uh, and here's Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State uh, telling us in no uncertain terms that the CFR tells her what to do. Thank you very much, um, Richard, and I am delighted to be here in these new headquarters. Um, I have been often to, uh, I guess, the mothership in New York City. Uh, but it's good to have an outpost of the council right here down the street from the State Department. Uh, we get a lot of advice from the council, so this will mean I won't have this far to go to uh, be told uh, what we should be doing and uh, how uh, we should uh, think about the future. To be told what we should be doing and what we should be thinking. Yeah, they, you know, nothing is as it appears. If you think that our leaders are anything other than puppets, then you're still uh, uh, living in non-reality. Uh, and I think more and more people are waking up, but, uh, you, you know, if that's you, you def definitely need to wake up. Speaking of Hillary Clinton, this is uh, something that we got from the WikiLeaks. Yeah, you like the picture I chose? Yeah. I mean, they do it to us. They pick the most ugly pictures of conservatives and put, put them out. So I'm going to, you know, uh, find, find one that's fitting. But anyway, this is uh, what we got from the uh, WikiLeaks, from the Podesta emails, and it's... Uh, uh, something that she said in a private speech shortly after she left office as Secretary of State. So she left in January of 2013. Obama put somebody else in play, or I guess whoever it would have been, 08, yeah, Obama. And then uh, she was in the private world. She did a private speech for bucus of money in Brazil to a Brazilian group of bankers. This was May 16, 2013, and she said, quote, My dream is a hemispheric common market with open trade and open borders some of them in the future with energy that is as green and sustainable as we can get it, powering growth and opportunity for every person in the hemisphere. And then speaking of the CFR, just to be fair and, and, and pick on some so-called conservatives, and by the way, if you think this guy's conservative, then uh, I don't know what I can tell you, but here's Dick Cheney acknowledging that his Wyoming supporters are not too happy about his association with the CFR. It's good to be back at the Council on Foreign Relations, as uh, Pete mentioned I been a member for a long time and was actually a director for some period of time. I never mentioned that when I was campaigning for re-election back home in Wyoming. I was, I was actually the director of the CFR for a while, but I never mentioned that when I was campaigning for re-election back in Wyoming, right? All right, so that's, uh, you know, that's borders in the burgeoning technocracy. And then let's look at borders in this coming beast system. After the rapture, 
after the Antichrist rises to the fore, signs the Treaty of Daniel 9.27, starts the clock ticking on that final seven-year period. And we read about this beast system in Revelation chapter 13. And authority was given to him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's the Antichrist. So once again, this is this globalism that they're trying to usher in. And whether that happens before the rapture or not, I don't know. But it will most definitely happen before the Antichrist takes over because the Bible tells us that he will preside over a one-world system of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And then we read about the false prophet, this beast from the earth, uh, that's, that is the subject of my latest uh, book. Uh, and he he's, has two horns like a lamb and he speaks like a dragon. And uh, he exercises all the authority of the first beast, the Antichrist. And notice he causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast. So, you know, this is, again, this reference to globalism and tearing down borders and establishing a one-world uh, system. He goes on to say he deceives those who dwell on the earth. And those who dwell on the earth, he causes them to make an image of the beast. Uh, and then he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. That's a series there in yellow of what's called merisms or figures of speech where you use two opposites to refer to everything. So basically it's just a poetic way of saying everybody on planet Earth will be under the regime at that time uh, in, the, in the second half of the tribulation of this uh, dynamic duo. Uh, and that mark of the beast will be so that no one can buy or sell except anyone who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. You go back to Revelation chapter uh, 12 and this war that breaks out in heaven at the midpoint where Michael and his angels fight with Satan and his angels and, and Satan and his angels did not prevail and, and as a result of that battle, God says, time is short. There's only three and a half years left before my son comes back and takes the throne that has been promised to him. And so for these final three and a half years, you're kicked out of heaven. Satan no longer will have access uh, to heaven in the final three and a half years. You know, now he does, right? We know this from the book of Job and other uh, passages where Satan has free reign. He can come and go, knock on God's door and, and, and so forth. But he will be confined to this earth in the second half of the tribulation. And just imagine how, uh, you know, evil things are going to be then. I mean, it, right now, evil with Satan and his, and his unseen realm and his celestial evil beings, demons and whatnot, are spread out throughout not only the earth, but the atmosphere. But when they're confined to the earth, wow, it's going to be heating up like, like crazy in that final uh, three and a half years. Uh, Revelation 16 um, at the, again, in the very waning moments of that final seven-year period, uh, we read that there are three unclean spirits that come out of one out of the mouth of Satan, one out of the mouth of the, of the Antichrist, and one out of the mouth of the false prophet, the unholy trinity, Satan, Antichrist, false prophet. In the same way that you know, God the Father sends his son Jesus as the express image of him on earth, Satan sends the Antichrist as, as his image bearer, so to speak, and in the same way that the Holy Spirit is drawing all men to Christ, convicting them of sin, righteousness, and judgment so that they come to faith. What's the false prophet's job? That's what I talk about in the new book. It's to lead people to worship and be allegiant to 
the Antichrist. So this unholy trinity, three demonic spirits are going to come out of each of them. And what are they going to do? They're going to go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world that, that he presides over. And they're going to marshal them together for this final battle at Armageddon that we read about there uh, in Revelation 19. And then finally, we'll end on a positive note, borders in the beautiful millennium. I mentioned that the globalist return, uh, you know, sh uh, has a satanic component, but then it shifts back full circle as the Bible comes full circle back to the pre-fall Edenic state where, you know, it was globalism before Babel. Uh, and once again, it's going to be globalism in uh, the millennium. So Psalm 50, a psalm of Asaph, the mighty one, God the Lord, has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun to its going down, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty. God will shine forth. Uh, Sons of Korah wrote this psalm. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God in his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion. On the sides of the north, the city of the great king, talking about Jerusalem, of course. Uh, Zechariah the prophet in this great millennial passage, the Lord their God will save them in that day, talking about the day of Christ's return, as the flock of his people, for they shall be like the jewels of a crown, lifted like a banner over his land, for how great is its goodness and how great is, his, is its beauty. Uh, and then Psalm 27, a psalm of David, one thing have I desired of the Lord, that, and that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Uh, psalm 26, another psalm of David. Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Back to Zechariah. It shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all nations which will come against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king. So even in the millennium, there are going to be nations, but each nation is not going to be sovereign. There won't be a need for borders then because it'll be a truly one world divine globalism with Christ ruling with perfect peace and justice. Isaiah the prophet put it this way, I know their works and their thoughts. It shall be that, that I will gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and see my glory in the millennium. We read about this in Revelation 21. Uh, even in the eternal state, the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, talking about the triune God is the temple. There's no temple in the eternal state. After that thousand-year millennium on the old earth, uh, the Godhead is the temple. And the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all. So think about, you know, contrast that with Nehemiah's day when they were so concerned about getting those gates hung so they could worship in peace. No need. When the Bible comes full circle and all things are made new, they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. Psalm 72, And blessed be his glorious name forever, and let the whole earth be filled with his glory. The kingdom is going to be a time of universal knowledge of the Lord, universal language, no war and conflicts. Kind of some of these characteristics are what we saw in the early days of globalism right after creation up until Babel peaceful society, perfect justice, universal worship, and removal of harmful environmental effects. By the way, there are harmful environmental effects, to be sure, but to be sure, global warming is a complete hoax, as has been known ever since the, the leaked Copenhagen documents 10, 15 years ago. Uh, and if we need any biblical proof of that, just remember what we read in Genesis, the book of beginnings. God says, while the, this was after uh, the, the, uh, the uh, flood, the Noahic covenant, 
While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. We're going to have cold days. We're going to have hot days. You don't have to worry about global warming. So, uh, so there you have it. You know, all of these different uh, through time aspects of uh, borders and the significance of it. And the reason they're trying to break it down now is because they believe they're so close to this one world system they can taste it. They are on the cusp of dismantling America, the one nation primarily standing in their way. They're going to do what they can to destroy it. So just, it's coming. Whether, I mean, I'm not a prophet, so I'm not here to set dates or predict anything, but it's absolutely coming. And uh, if the Lord doesn't come back soon, that we may find ourselves living in unprecedented times as a, a nation. And I get into all this in the new book, Spirit of the False Prophet. We uh, don't have our inventory yet. We, there's a good chance we'll have it by the end of the week, but we will ship it to you. If you decide you want uh, to get a copy, you can see Wendy at the table back there, and we'll t get your address and, and uh, get you one. We have a few other books back there. I mentioned the first two uh, Spirit of the Antichrist uh, books. And I guess I need to change that slide now. They're not my newest books. Uh, so the volume two there came out 11 months ago, and then the, the new one just came out September 1st. Uh, and then my other two eschatology books that are back there are What Lies Ahead and The Great Last Day's Deception. And then I've got my uh, book of theological charts, diagrams, and illustrations. So with that, uh, we'll take a few questions here as we uh, shift into the Q&A time. Anybody have a question, comment, thought? No, huh? Okay, good. Great. Yeah, we're going to use the mic so that people can hear us on the live stream. So Hold that one right up to him real close. Oh, well, yeah, you need, it needs to be pointed right at his mouth, so let him hold it. This is a first. We, All right. <laughs> you had the slide where you showed Israel, uh, what was promised, and mm -hmm. Turkey, and I mean, it was massive. And then the red portion was, I think you said, modern-day Israel. Mm -hmm. When you think of, like, the height of the kingdom, like, under Solomon or, or Slope, did they expand at that time? I mean, what was the border of Israel around King David? Oh, Solomon? yeah. They've had bigger portions. And, in fact, even what's promised to them that you see in blue there on the screen, Joshua tells us there was a day when they had, you know, all of that, they had the rights to it, but they never made it that far. They never actually were able to inhabit it. So there have been times throughout Israel's history when they've had the rights to the full promised land, uh, and, and there have been times when they've inherited much more than what they have today, but they've never inhabited all of it the way they will in the kingdom. Somebody else? Just wondering about the one, two, and three on that map. What did they designate? I've never noticed that before. I don't know. <laughs> one, two. So those are the first three ordinal numbers in the <laughs> numbering system. You wanted more than that? I honestly don't know. I don't know. I've been using this map for so long, I don't even remember where I got it. Anybody else? Yes. Is China on board with being part of a, a global order? Because they, they kind of seem to want to be the, the head of everything. Yeah, so 
That's a great question. Did you guys hear the question? Yeah, so remember the, the, the New World Order, the Luciferian conspiracy is not uh, monolithic. It's not like there's one guy at the top pushing buttons and everybody falls right in line. It's made up of evil dictators and world leaders. They often have their own agendas, their own competing conflicts, and that's why it's, it's been so sloppy so long. And so um, they're not, it's not like they're all working in lockstep to usher in a one-world system. Satan is. Satan's planning on that. But there's competing agendas. And so my best guess right now, and I've talked about this a lot with some of my guests like Leo Homan and uh, Randy and some others, um, is that China right now is kind of a lone wolf. They see an opportunity. They're fomenting uh, unrest between Russia and America, and they're going to let us kind of go at it. And I definitely believe if the Lord tarries is coming, we're going to be involved in a war with Russia. Uh, and they want that because then they, they, they let us kind of take each other out, and then they're left standing, and then they kind of usher in. Uh, but it's you know, the, the geopolitical landscape of different world powers and superpowers and so forth is kind of a subset of the broader satanic plan that only the top tier uh, people, you know, really are in the know about. So they are masters of deception. I'm going to see if I have, yeah, I meant, I didn't put it in there. I meant to put in my chart of the Luciferian conspiracy, but it's in the, the volume one. Uh, or my chart book, but I show you the different tiers. And at the top tier, there's just like six or eight families that you probably wouldn't even know most of their names. It's like Queen Beatrice and the Netherlands royal family and uh, the Rothschilds and people like that. And they're the ones that kind of see the big picture. Uh, below them, they're just provoking people and, and nation states and stuff to, to do things like moving pieces around on a chessboard. Okay. So. All right, thank you. Anybody else? Yeah. So in a nutshell, would you say that it's uh, fair to say um, that all politics today is really a debate between globalism and nationalism? And maybe a uh, second part of that question would be that the worst enemy of, of globalism is a guy running around saying, make America great again? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> wow, you're really trying to get me in trouble, Paul. Um, I'll answer the second part first. I, in the second volume, again, which just came out last year uh, in October, I have a whole section on Trump and how I think he plays into all of this. It's just my opinion. I'm not privy to any information, but I've been studying this stuff for a long time, and so it's an educated opinion. You may not agree, but at least it gives you that perspective. Um, but as far as, you know, in a nutshell, all politics, first of all, I love the, the best definition I've heard of politics was by the late Robin Williams, who said politics is from that compound word poly, meaning many, and ticks, meaning blood-sucking creatures. So that's kind of how I feel about politics. Um, you know, it's in more recent decades, I mean, we know it's been going on particularly in America since the turn of the 20th century. And I explain how that all came about in my series. But uh, from the early 1900s on, they've been setting about to destroy America and usher in the one world system. But it's kind of emerged from behind the shadows to be a mainstream discussion with things like the World Economic Forum and some of these other globalist organizations. I did a session here on Tuesday nights in part of our uh, prophecy night on the 
emergence of all these world organizations. And, and it just kind of showed you World Health Organization, World Economic Forum, World Trade Organization, you name it. Um, so right now, yeah, there's, it's not so much a debate as it is this is where we're going. Either you come along or we'll take you out. That, that's what they're going to do. Every nation is going to have to come along to the central bank digital currencies. I have a chapter on that in the new book and explain how that is a key role in the, bio, in the complete digital surveillance grid. So, yeah, I think that's not an overstatement to say that it comes down. Uh, but I wouldn't say that it's much of a fight because there's nobody out there fighting for nationalism. And I mean nobody. And so if you have a favorite American politician who you've hitched your wagon to, who you think is championing the cause of conservative nationalism and so forth, you're just going to be disappointed because they're all controlled. Um, but... Uh, I mean, and if there was somebody out there that really is a freedom-loving person, they're not that influential. And if they got to be influential, they'd take them out. I just, I hate to sound so cynical, but I know, I know Bible prophecy, and I also know kind of the behind-the-scenes stuff, and it's, it's not pretty. So, um, but God's in, in control, and if he's ready, not ready for this one-world system to be rolled out, then, you know, maybe there'll be a resurgence. Maybe there'll be a revival of sorts. Um, the picture the Bible paints is not one of a global revival. It paints just the opposite. Second Timothy 3.13 says, Evil men and impostors will get worse and worse. All right? Uh, but that doesn't mean there couldn't be pockets of revival. And perhaps, if God is willing, we could see a return uh, to uh, you know, biblical principles in our country. But it would be quite a miracle, I'll tell you that. Anybody else? So what are we little people supposed to be doing in the meantime? <laughs> so uh, I'm glad you asked that. The, the last chapter in the new book, as in my other books, has solutions. And uh, it's how to escape the prison planet and what we should be doing. I think you need to stay in the Word. You need to, first of all, you need to make sure you know the Lord. And since I don't know a lot of you here tonight, I want to be clear that the number one priority is to get your spiritual house in order. If you never trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation, that's the only way to be saved. The only hope of eternal life is to place your faith in the Son of God who died and rose again to pay your personal penalty for sins. And so if you have not done that, today's the day. <laughs> Do that today because we're not promised tomorrow. Uh, if you're already a believer, you've already trusted in Christ and Him alone for salvation, then I think it's going to be more and more important, especially with what's going on with AI, that we get to know the truth and really saturate ourselves with the Word of God because we're fast entering an era where we're not going to know truth from fiction. And that's one of the scariest things about this, this AI. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we, can be, we need to be prepared. Proverbs 22.3 says, He who sees trouble coming and prepares for it is wise. Um, we need to take care of one another. Um, I don't think, you know, you're certainly not going to win the battle at the ballot box. That's obvious you know they've controlled that for decades ever since they went to digital vote tabulation it's all just a selection not an election so I wouldn't put your hope in that at the local level I think in certain contexts we can make a difference at you know with voting in terms of municipalities and school boards and things that are still using traditional paper ballots to where you can have chain of custody but once it's digital it's just a few keystrokes and they just can announce who they want to be their next leader. And it's been that way for decades, at least at the national level. Um, 
So I would, I wouldn't, I would choose wisely. Time is short. I wouldn't spin your wheels, you know, but only on the things that really can make a difference. And I think the time is, and you know, Renee and, and Maggie and some of these others that are on the front lines may may have, you know, feel differently. But I think based on what I'm seeing, the time has come to. To, to help your family and your loved ones and to begin really making it. We're not, we're just, you know, it's, it's the, 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 the car has already burst through the guardrail and is hurtling over the cliff. So there's just not much we're going to be able to do uh, except share Christ, share the gospel, make sure our spiritual house is in order and be prepared for what's coming. That, that's, that's really what God's called us to do at Not By Works. So intercessors and prayer, could you speak on that? Because yeah. we're uh, women aglow and, and a bunch of us went, and we went to Colorado and we secured the borders prophetically. And uh, we've been praying 24-7 um, Amen. <clears throat> uh, through the night. And, um, and I believe, I mean, I am so in love with the Trinity that, um, I mean, I'm secure in that not afraid to die but um i wouldn't know where to begin as a single woman you know so anyway but yeah so prayer absolutely is critical and god answers prayers of his people the examples i gave tonight of that case study was the result of prayer you know god, uh, nehemiah prayed and god you know opened the doors in, in a face of insurmountable odds you know I mean, he could have been killed for even requesting that from Artaxerxes, the Persian king, but God prepared the way. So, again, as I've said several times, you know, God's the ultimate arbiter of the timetable, and when he's ready, we'll enter the end times phase of his plan, but not a moment sooner. But uh, I think, you know, faith and preparedness are not mutually exclusive. Remember, Proverbs says, the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but deliverance is from the Lord. So you need both. So we don't want to just sit back and presume on the Lord. Oh, the Lord will take care of me. But at the same time, we don't want to think that we got to do it all, and if, if we can't prepare for every eventuality, then somehow we're doomed. No, God's in control, and prayer is a key a part of that. But as far as practical things that you can do, again, uh, the last chapter in the new book gets into whole lists of things that you can should think about, the scenarios to consider, what items you should consider having in your preparedness kit. And by the way, I'm not just—I'm tr not trying to sell books. We make our NBW preparedness guide available for free from our website. You can download the PDF. Just go to notbyworks.org, click on resources. It's right there. We just integrated a lot of that material into the book. Uh, so yeah, I think there are things you can do. Don't worry about what you can't do. <laughs> right. If you can't do it, you can't do it, right? Um, yeah, I, I, there was a, 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 a African American preacher who I loved. I shared the platform with him a, a couple of times at these uh, big uh, conferences and. Uh, he used to say, I heard him say a couple of times, and it, it always stuck with me, if, if you, no need to worry about the things you got no control over, because if you got no control over it, there's no need to worry about it, right? So, you know, that, just, just do what you can, right? Uh, don't become overwhelmed by everything. Just do what you can. Anybody else? Yeah. So on the bigger picture of why are they allowing so many people in right now? Why is there basically no border right now um, in the globalist agenda? Um, and do you, 
anticipate in the, the future, like say um, somebody else comes in and does start to continue to build a wall and things like that, um, I would assume that might be because of prayer and because God is allowing us a little bit of reprieve. So could be. Yeah. Could I saw a clip that. today uh, and I, I can't verify if it's accurate, but it was uh, down on the, in the Texas uh, Mexico border. I think it was on Twitter and uh, they interviewed one of the construction workers there that was Mexican. And he came right out and said, no, nah, we're we're taking over building the wall and we're paying for it because we know America's about to collapse and we want to keep you guys out of Mexico when your country goes to pot. And that's what this construction crew said. So who knows if that's true? Um, but you know, I think they're it's, again. It's not monolithic, so it's not like we can sneak a peek at their playbook and say, "Ah, this is exactly why they're letting them in." But I think there's several reasons that are well documented. Number one, they they want to to to, and this goes way back. I can remember years ago we lived in Texas and. There were a lot of stories about if you, if you were a you know drunk driver and got in an accident and the police you know came to the scene and you were uh, an illegal immigrant, they just said okay leave you can go, they just let you go. They were instructed to do that. But if you were an American citizen, man, they just throw the book at you. And so I think they they're trying to, you know, completely saturate the populace with, you know, chaos and and lack of control and. Uh, you know, not every person who comes across the border illegally is a terrorist or someone intent on doing evil. Some of them are just looking for a better life. Uh, but there's a proper way to do that and not do that. But they, they want them all over here. So I think that's part of it. I think part of it is they are, and this has been documented by a lot of people over the last many years, uh, they, they, they have terrorist cells that they're bringing across. And and, and going to trigger and activate at just the right time. Um, doesn't mean there's a terrorist behind every bush or anything like that, but it does mean that that's part of it is, uh, you know, it makes it harder for them to do their job uh, if the borders are more tightly controlled. But um, the way I understand it and, and what, what the message I really want you to take away from this as far as the borders is concerned is to me it's 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 not as simplistic as sometimes we make it seem. Like I, I, in full disclosure, everybody probably knows I'm not a Trump fan. I've talked about that extensively. Uh, I was disinvited from conferences back in 2016 because I did not, you know, was not favorable toward uh, Trump. I, I believe he's a controlled agent, a pawn in the game and, and so forth. And I know too much about his history too. But, you know, th this this whole idea of of, you know, if we just built this wall, that would solve the problem. To me, that's kind of like the TSA is going to keep terrorists from blowing up planes. Well, first of all, no planes have ever blown up, okay, not domestic planes by terrorists. And secondly, if I'm a terrorist wanting to blow up a plane, I'm probably not going through security. You know, I'm going to cut a hole in the chain link fence around the perimeter of the airport, run across the tarmac under cover of night, and stick a bomb in the wheel well. Or so I'm not going to walk through security with a bomb. I mean, that's just ludicrous. The TSA was never about protection. It was about control. It was completely right out of the Nazi uh, playbook. And it's just absurd to this day that anybody thinks that the TSA actually provides some level of security from their real bad guys. In the same way, I don't think the wall is going to protect us. I mean, like I talked about that example up in that property in northern Washington. 
I mean, there was no wall there. I mean, if you want to get into this country and do bad things, you can find a way to do it. And they've been doing that, you know, for 250 years. So I don't think the wall is going to really be, I think that's a head fake. And as Leo Homan has pointed out, don't forget walls work both ways, right? They can keep you in as well as keeping you out. So if you're trying to create a highly controlled prison planet, and the main country that is your biggest obstacle in that is freedom-loving, God-fearing, gun-toting Americans, you'd, you'd probably want to build a lot of walls, seems to me. So I just, you know, I don't think there's any one reason why they're letting them over. Uh, to me, I see it as a big picture, which is just to further the philosophical agenda of borderless, one-world, you know, regionalization. That, that's kind of my perspective, anyway. Anybody else? Okay. Well, you guys have been so gracious and so patient, and thanks for listening. I hope something that we talked about tonight was of some uh, redeeming value for you. Um, feel free to pick up one of my cards if I can ever help with anything, or you want to just reach out or uh, ask questions or just talk. I'd love to hear from you. But uh, anything else from TPUSA or... Yeah. Yeah. Sign up. Be a part of this group. They are on the cutting edge. Really, you know, have their finger on the pulse of what's happening, and a lot of great people, great suggestions, great work. So, check out the the local chapter of TPUSA. Let me close this in prayer, and then we'll dismiss. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity tonight, just to reflect on uh, the biblical view of world history and kind of how things are shaping up. Lord, it's an exciting time, and we, we rest in your goodness. We trust in your word. We know that you've given us everything we need for life and godliness in your word, and that includes the prophetic scriptures. And so, Lord, help us to, uh, to not be discouraged, but to be emboldened and encouraged, knowing that all of these signs are just uh, more signs that indicate you're in control and everything is coming to fruition precisely as you uh, said it would in the same way that the first advent of your son and our savior was in complete fulfillment literally of all of the old testament scriptures in the same way the prophecies relating to the end times are going to come about and so we we look forward with great expectancy to that and lord we ask now your blessings as we dismiss and, and give us your uh, watch care and safety as we travel in jesus name amen, amen.